Hello, hello, kids, and welcome to another episode. I am your resident spooky drag queen, Pissy Miles. And I'm your resident spooky smartass, Sam Baxter. And, and this, this is my, my spooky, spooky gay family. family. Hello, Sam Baxter. Hello, Pissy Miles. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm heavily caffeinated. <laughs> like, As am I. It's been just like the longest day. It feels like a World War II movie. <laughs> I've, I've been having quite a day, quite a weekend. Uh, I know I was talking a bit about it in the mini-sode this week, but I bought a new car this weekend and I'm very excited about it, but very just like very exhausted because Saturday was my day off and I spent literally the entire day like trying to procure my new car uh, <laughs> and finally managed to do it after literally eight hours of uh, bullshit. Um, so my day off didn't feel like a day off. Yeah. But it is worth it. Like it paid off because I got a brand new car, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm just like, I'm ready for tomorrow when like i don't have anything to do <laughs> i'm just going to play stardew valley and stare into the abyss um how was your weekend it was fine it was mostly spent playing stardew valley and staring into the abyss beautiful yeah <laughs> you're living my dream <laughs> uh how was your week did you do anything crazy this week not really i just worked and played ps4 that mm. was that was pretty much my whole week are you reading anything right now? I am. I'm reading The Obelisk Gate by N.K. Jemisin. What is that? It's the second book in the Broken Earth trilogy. Is that like a fantasy sci-fi? It is. Uh, I would call it solidly fantasy mm -hmm. because there's magic involved. Okay. But um, no, it's a really great series. And if you haven't read it, you really should. What it's, is it about? It's essentially... There's this, I don't even know how to explain it. It's so complex. <laughs> um, essentially, there, there are people who can, who can manipulate sort of the geologic forces around them. Mm. And they're sort of outcasts in their own society. And there's, there's a lot going on in terms of one of them set off like an apocalyptic event. And now we're reading the fallout. So it it sounds a bit like Magneto, but with rocks. A little bit. Okay. It, that's not terribly far off. <laughs> um, it is a lot more complex than that. And if you've never read a book by N.K. Jemisin, I highly recommend that you do. Huh. Are, um, are they a good writer? Yes, N.K. Jemisin is a very good writer. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm interested enough that I might give it a shot. Uh, but I haven't had a lot of time for reading recently. I did mention recently I was reading um, the book Celtic Myth and Magic, uh, which is a really great book. Like I like I said in the last episode, I don't remember which episode it was. Was I talking about in a minisode or a, I think it was a minisode. I think it was a minisode. I I I was 
talking about this amazing book. It's called uh, Celtic Myth and Magic. And it is basically what we were talking about is the fact that there are not there are us are surprisingly few resources regarding uh celtic lore and celtic magic Yay, um, oral tradition exactly it's an oral tradition <laughs> uh but i found this really really great book uh it's called celtic myth and magic i cannot remember uh i think the last name of the author is mccoy that's what it looks like from from here yeah it's something but it again the issue I have with a lot, I shouldn't say the issue, the the thing about reading about uh, magic and, and witchcraft is that a lot of the books are not like, you don't like read them cover to cover. It's like you dip in for the things you're looking for, at least in my experience. Yeah, they're, they're more... <sighs> they're more resource books than they are like guidebooks. Right. If that makes sense, like you kind of have to figure out what you want to do before you start reading. <laughs> or which pieces you're looking for, because it can be, there's a lot of information to sift through. And for someone like me who is not very good at retaining information, it can be a bit overwhelming. So you have to have like, you have to have kind of the mindset of I'm going into this just generally trying to scoop up as much as I can. Um, but I like this book. It's very well written and it is very uh, comprehensive. It's very detailed. Um, and I, I really like this author. I think the author really does justice to a lot of Celtic um, witchcraft and tradition and makes it uh, accessible and and fun to read about, especially mm -hmm. if you come from that heritage the way we do. Uh, so... It's a it's a really great book. I'm kind of dipping in and out of that at the moment, and I also <laughs> I've also been in, on a totally different path. Have been trying to make my way through Mary Trump's book. <laughs> um, I I should w say that like I don't know why I did, but I had much higher hopes when I started it. I I think it was just like me hoping that it would be a tell-all from like the one sane Trump. Yeah. And I do think that there's something to be said for her. I don't think she's, I don't think she is much like the rest of her family, but I also wouldn't say that if I met her, I would be surprised to find out she was related to them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I do, yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because she seems like a perfectly wonderful woman, um, as as far as I can tell. But there's just a little bit of... Um, basically, she is Donald Trump's niece. Uh, she was... Her, her father, Frederick, was Donald Trump's older brother. And she's very damning of most of her family, uh, particularly Donald. But she kind of, she kind of gives a lot of leniency and makes a lot of excuses for her father mm -hmm. in, in a way that like, like she kind of paints him as like the outcast and the black sheep of the family and the one who never did anything wrong and who sacrificed his whole life for the family. And it's like, I, I think it's a very romantic way of looking at her father, if I'm being honest. I mean, I, I think most people 
if they were going to write a book like that. Mm -hmm. I I can see why they would maybe look at their own parents with some rose colored glasses. And that's how it's like. There's a part of me that can understand and appreciate why she feels the way she does or why she wrote the book the way she did. But at the same time, it it just kind of like it puts everything else kind of into question. You know what I mean? Because it demonstrates a very clear bias. And so it kind of becomes like, well, if I'm if I'm going into this trying to learn because she has a background in psychology and I'll give her that, you know, Mm -hmm. I I can't take that away from her. She is she clearly has a very strong education. Um, she is clearly an intelligent person, but I was just, I was surprised, frankly, by the kind of, uh, very visible bias in the book. Um, and so I, I haven't really finished it. I started it quite a while back and haven't really, um, I haven't really finished it. And I think it's because I'm having a hard time seeing past her. Because in my mind, I want an objective kind of uh, dissection of this family. I want an objective, this is what happened and this is why my family is the way it is. And it just doesn't feel very objective to me. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to be objective when you're talking about your own family. I mean, probably not. But I would have thought that in writing the book, like if I was writing a book like that, if my family was as well known and well known for being psychotic as her family is, I would I would want to write a book that was as objective as possible, that was as introspective as possible because it's like what can you offer if not some kind of introspection because i can look at the trumps and tell you they're crazy and why (laughs) i don't need that i i don't need you to tell me why they're crazy i need you to tell me the stuff i would i wouldn't otherwise know and i think in a big way that's everything there is to know about her family that we didn't see. And she does go into a lot of detail about stuff like that. But again, when when you're painting one person as like, you know, he went to bed every night on his crucifix, and then <laughs> you're painting the rest of your family like they were poking him with spears every night, it, it's like, I, I want to go on this ride with you, but you're making it very difficult to enjoy it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, I get that. I don't know. So that is kind of my experience with Mary Trump's book at the moment. I I like to check in every once in a while because, uh, you know, we we don't get a chance to talk a lot about the other things that we're doing with our lives. (laughs) (laughs) I've been binge watching Friends, uh, which has been thoroughly enjoyable. You know, it's very dated and... uh, I don't like this word, but I think a lot of... Gen Zers would probably call it problematic. Um, I don't personally care for that word. I think problematic is kind of a... a... I think it's a bit overused. It's overused, I think. And it it also kind of doesn't allow anything to live in context. 
oh, this is dangerous territory. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not justifying it, but I, I do no. think that... Uh, I'll give you a great example. Right now, I saw an article the other day, and of course, these are all clickbait articles, so who knows what this actually was pertaining to. But I saw an article headline the other day that was essentially saying that uh, young people, and I'm using that term with very, very heavy quotations, um, young people are trying to essentially ban Grease because it's uh, problematic, Grease the musical? The the movie musical. Okay. The, uh, because it is sexist and uh, I guess uh, it, it it's misogynistic. And I think the, the quoted term was a bit rapey. Um, <laughs> okay. And some, I, I, I don't remember who posted it, but they were talking about how like, they're like, you know, I don't I can't say one way or another whether it is or isn't, but I think banning things like that is is a terrible way to kind of forget your past. You know? I think so. We we've talked about this before. Yeah. That there's a certain amount of context required when you're looking at things like media. Yeah. Especially it, when they're over a decade yeah. old. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily excuse the things about it that bother you. Mm-hmm. But there very rarely seems to be any attempt made to understand the context of something when it was made or when it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Like, Grease, the film is what, 80s? 70s. 70s? Yeah. It's 70s about the 50s. About the, the 50s. 50s were yeah. a misogynistic time. Yeah. <laughs> and a bit <laughs> and a rapey. Bit rapey. <laughs> so it's... It's not surprising that it doesn't stand up to 2021's idea of um, gender politics or yeah. consent issues. Like, yeah. it's, it's not it's not surprising that, yeah, no, this is going to be, quote unquote, problematic. Yeah. The same way The Godfather is problematic. The same, <laughs> the same way any... <laughs> Any, the same way any movie made before 1990 is problematic and many of the movies made after 1990 are problematic. Exactly. And that's kind of what I was getting at because I'm watching Friends and obviously like there are very homophobic jokes. There yes. are very uh, transphobic jokes. There are. And it's like, you know, it doesn't make it more palatable, but having grown up in that era, I think I'm able to kind of like compartmentalize it a bit better because yeah. it's like well it's the it's it's kind of like i call it the to wang fu effect yeah where it's like chandler's father is a drag queen but uh clearly is living her life as a trans woman mm-hmm. and it's like there's no separation it was like that time in the 90s where it was like people were first starting to talk about it because you had the first big drag boom in the 90s and uh so straight people were trying to process something that they had no context for. And yeah. the idea of being trans was so foreign to people. The only term they had was drag queen. Uh, and so Chandler's father is described as a drag queen, but she uh, it, she is played by Kathleen Turner and, and lives her entire life of the series as a woman, like goes to his yeah. wedding uh, quote unquote in drag, uh, you, you know what I mean, and has like 
a Vegas show where she is a drag queen, but it's like by today's standards, almost all of that is outdated and quote unquote problematic. But having lived through that time and, and knowing (laughs) how, how, stupid (laughs) people who are making media at the time could be about things like that. You kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and say, yes, this was problematic, but we've look how far we've come and thank God, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's also like not for nothing, particularly when you're saying that you're concerned about issues like this, like being able to look back at what at prime examples of the behavior that you don't want mm-hmm. <laughs> to be replicated. <laughs> like, having movies and books and things like that are actually a handy tool for looking at other people and saying, see, this is what I'm talking about. This yeah. is what I don't like. Yeah. Because it's a cultural touchstone that everybody understands. And I'm not saying that, oh, look, it's good that Greece is a bit rapey. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is, like... If you wanted to talk about sexism in the 50s, Grease would be an excellent film to show somebody. Right. So, like, I don't know. I th- I think I don't want to be the person who's sitting here going, lighten up. Yeah. But be aware that, like, these things that you're lambasting and these things that you're trying to protect people from, like, They have their place in history. They have their place in pop culture. And it's good to start a discussion about why the things they portray are bad. Mm -hmm. And it's a good way to ease someone into a discussion of why certain behavior is bad. Mm -hmm. But to just say, okay, we're going to erase this from pop culture completely (laughs) is a revisionist idea that just doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like it's it's like yeah, no, like George Washington was a slave owner and he was extremely problematic. We're not going to erase him from American history. We can't. Yeah. <laughs> so like we need to reckon with that and we yeah. need to talk about it. But you can't just be like, well, okay, we're never talking about George Washington again. Yeah. And no one can ever read any of his speeches or memoirs or anything ever again. <laughs> like, it's, and I'm not trying to equate Greece with the writings of George Washington. <laughs> but like, I don't think anyone would. <laughs> but like, I, d- I don't know. I think, I think part of this new wave of trying to be as inclusive and as open-minded as we can possibly be has to be learning how to deal with the bad stuff yeah. as opposed to just painting a white wall in front of it and going, well, this doesn't exist. Yeah, because <laughs> the idea of being more inclusive and more uh, open-minded is absolutely something I think that we should be striving toward and working toward. But it ha- we have to have the tools to talk about it. And also, you know, I am not a big fan of Grease, if I'm being honest. It's not one of my favorite musicals. (laughs) But I will say the movie is very different from the stage show in that the stage show is very kind of campy and intentionally poking fun at that culture of the 50s greaser culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas the movie kind of missed its mark. And this is actually almost a good segue 
into the topic for today. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, I was sitting here going, how the hell did we get here? I know what we were supposed to be talking about. <laughs> and it is strangely related to this conversation. But, um, you know, the musical Grease is very campy and tongue-in-cheek, whereas the movie musical was kind of dumbed down for straight people. <laughs> Because we all know that musicals are made for the gays. And, um, you know, if you want to see kind of the epitome of what Grease actually is, you should kind of revisit the Broadway production from the early 1990s starring Billy Porter as the Teen Angel. And uh, that, like, the level of camp and irony and satire of the 50s greaser culture is Mm -hmm. just, like, it's immaculate. And... When, again, it's like, then you have characters like Rizzo, who, who is, is my favorite. the best, and she's singing about how there are worse things she could do that, than go with a boy or two, and she ends up getting an abortion. You yeah. know what I mean? So there are feminist viewpoints in, in the movie, although I don't think she gets the, an abortion in the movie. No, um, it just turns out it was a scare. Yeah. Uh, but all of this is to say that uh, it, I, I don't even remember actually how we got here. <laughs> all of this is to say you brought up Greece. I don't remember how I don't remember, I don't remember how, how I got here. Um but the the point of the matter is We got here somehow from Mary Trump. I don't know. Mary Trump, <laughs> Mary Trump to Greece, obviously. <laughs> and uh Greece to the main topic of of the day. Um yeah, I actually think that this is a good segue into the topic of the episode today because the the movie musical we are talking about today is so phenomenally executed it cannot <laughs> it cannot be mistaken for anything other than what it is <laughs> it is well nigh perfect it yes exactly <laughs> uh i'm i'm actually really excited for the movie we're talking about today it is one of my favorites i believe it's only the second movie musical we've done on the podcast we did rocky horror at one point although i think if i'm not mistaken um due to some like technical things we had to take down a couple of episodes uh back around that time and i think rocky horror might have been one of them i think we took down uh rocky horror the birdcage and jurassic park yeah back when we did movies that weren't horror movies Because it was the early stages of quarantine and we're like, we just can't talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like- <laughs> um, and we did talk about Rocky Horror, though I don't know if the episode is still up. That said, we are talking about another great horror adjacent slash right on the nose horror musical comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a funny film because I'm not quite sure where it goes it, it, uh, in in category wise. Like, yeah, it's, not, it's like almost indescribable in like, like the best way. It's a comedy. It is in fact a horror movie. Yeah. Like it's a musical. It's sci-fi. <laughs> like, yeah. It's it's a little bit of everything. Um, it's just a, a jambalaya of pure bliss. A jambalaya. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are, of course, talking about the uh, the topic of our episode today, and that is the 1986, would you call this a cult classic? I don't know if I'd even call it a cult classic. It's I, a classic. I think it's just a classic. It's a classic uh, musical comedy horror 
thing. Thing. Yeah. Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. <laughs> and it is one of the best movies ever made, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I really don't know where this well let let's get let's give a little background and then we'll we'll jump into it. Okay. Um this movie like I said came out in 1986. It stars Rick Moranis as the uh ill-fated Seymour Krellborn and Ellen Green as the uh lovable sidekick Audrey and the amazing Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops as the voice of Audrey to the venomous and uh carnivorous plant, the Venus flytrop <laughs> that uh uh Seymour nurses to health. And it was written by two really amazing fucking people. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman wrote this. It was originally a musical. The musical premiered, I believe, in 1982 off-Broadway. I can't remember. I believe okay. it's 1982 off-Broadway in New York City. And it ran for over almost 3,000 performances. It ran for something like seven or eight years, which is like unfathomable for an off-Broadway show. Um <laughs> There is an original cast recording. It starred uh, an entirely different cast with the exception of Ellen Green. Ellen Green is the only actor who went from the off-Broadway production to the film. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy, but I think they made the right choice. I 100% agree. Although, I mean, I don't know uh, I don't know what the original Seymour was like. So I don't know if he was very good. I'm I mean, sure that he was. I, I can't say whether or not it was the right choice to leave out the other off-Broadway actors, but I think it was definitely the right choice to bring in Ellen Green. Yeah, um, absolutely. If, for no other reason than during my research today, I learned that they had offered the role to Cindy Lauper. And as yeah. much as I love Cindy Lauper, I'm glad they got Ellen Green. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Cindy Lauper. And I actually think she's a pretty good actress. I will mm-hmm. say that. I saw her in Three Penny Opera on Broadway with Alan Cumming, and she was very good in it. Her voice was phenomenal. I mean, you can't take away from Cyndi Lauper that she no. is a phenomenal singer. But this would be a completely different movie without Ellen Green. Uh, I 100% agree. I think Ellen Green is kind of the backbone of this whole movie. Yeah. If, if, I, if I'm being honest. She is such a skilled actor that, like, did you know she doesn't have a lisp? <laughs> Did you know that? I I mean, I I had IMDb'd her earlier today because I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen her in anything else before <laughs> since. And I can't believe that because that's such a cr- crime. And apparently she's been on all kinds of TV. She's oh, been yeah, in all kinds of Daisy, movies. Pushing daisies. Like, and I just never knew it was her. And I'm betting it's because she wasn't talking like that. Talking like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, if she's not doing that, I'm not going to know it's her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, doctor. I'm sorry, doctor. Uh, yeah, she is absolutely phenomenal. That, by the way, is my Ellen Green impression. Um, she is absolutely phenomenal. And though I only wrote down one note while I was watching this movie, and it was that Ellen Green has the longest neck of a human <laughs> I have ever seen. It looks... <laughs> It, it does make her look kind of goose-like, doesn't it? It's yeah, she's like, very, she's like a bird. It's like like a delicate bird. And it looks like her parents were like, 
Liz Taylor and a giraffe. It's just like, <laughs> I can't, I, I don't have words for the like bizarreness that is Ellen Green, but like so beautiful and talented. And like, I don't have enough kind words to say about Ellen Green. I think she is, like I said, the backbone of this entire movie. Although, uh, I will say, I think Rick Moranis is phenomenal. And who knew he could sing? Nobody until this movie, I suppose. I had always thought that he was somehow involved in the original production, but he was not. He was never in the stage production. He was only involved in the in the film. Um, but he he does have a great voice that, and he. I think the thing that I love so much about this movie is that this movie is pure camp. Oh, yes. Like, pure camp. It was 100%. Di- it was directed by none other than Yoda and Miss Piggy, her himself, <laughs> Frank Oz. Uh, and it just, it's like, it's like watching a Muppet movie that none of the Muppets were in. <laughs> Like it's it's like it's like if if all of the There's Muppets a were Muppet. yeah one murder Muppet <laughs> and it's surprisingly not Sam the Eagle. Um, I always did expect that he would snap at some point. At some point, it's the eyebrows. It's, it is. The eyebrows. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it doesn't surprise me that Frank Oz was the director of this. Uh, not only in terms of the style, but in terms of the sense of humor, the things that were done with the puppetry, and we will get into that, I yes. promise you. That's going to be like a 20-minute rant. It, this this episode could be like four hours long because there is just... <laughs> the way this movie was made is so unlike anything you would ever see today. We'll get into it. We're we're gonna be the old biddies today, so get ready, Gen Z. We're 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 gonna complain <laughs> about you. Um, let's start at the very beginning. This was something I was kind of getting into before. This movie is a musical, comedy, horror, sci-fi thriller, romance, romance. All of the above, and like I, I, I almost, comment on classism. Ca- yeah, well. <laughs> I like. I almost don't know where to draw the line on this movie because it spans so many. Uh, it spans so many genres and parodies them and satirizes them so efficiently. I think the only thing I can say is that when I worked at Blockbuster, mm-hmm. it was always shelved in the comedy section. Mm. So I think that's like. Not that I'm saying Blockbuster is all-knowing, but I'm <laughs> saying that, like... But in this case, they were. <laughs> but in this case, I do think that's probably the best place for it. Yeah, I will agree. Uh, because, A, it is a very funny movie. It's if, incredibly funny. If you go into it knowing that you should expect this to be ridiculous. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would say movies like this one are really a heavy influence in like my sense of humor. Like if you watch, excuse me, if you watch um, like Baba Shook Mm -hmm. or if you watch uh, Drag Queen Storytime with Pissy Miles, it's like this style of humor very clearly affected my, my upbringing and, and my sensibility. And there's a camp sensibility that I'm I'm almost afraid to say you either have it or you don't. 
I agree with that. I think that there are some people who kind of can't let go enough to enjoy camp. And yeah. there are there are some people who can. Yeah. Like, it's... Like, because for me, like, camp is essentially looking at you and going, okay, this is ridiculous. I know it's ridiculous. You know it's ridiculous. But we're going to have fun. Exactly. And I can't tell you how many times I've, like... I've made some, like, joke short video, like a TikTok or something. Mm-hmm. And I've shown it to... I, I won't name names, but like one of my friends and they'll be like, I don't get it. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. And it's like, <laughs> but that's the point is that it like doesn't make sense. Like that's the humor is yeah. that it's like ridiculous. And I think camp is either a sensibility you have or it's a sensibility you don't have. And Frank Oz clearly has it in droves. <laughs> <laughs> the man is Miss Piggy. He's Miss Piggy. <laughs> You can't be Miss Piggy if you don't understand camp. Camp, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Piggy is a drag queen. Essentially, yes. Uh, Yeah, so I do think that this movie definitely falls into comedy. And that's even pulling from the fact that musicals of all shapes and sizes were at one point all called musical comedies because they were all supposed to be kind of lighthearted and airy Mm -hmm. and that was kind of what the golden age of broadway was it was like they were all musical comedies they were called musical comedies and then people kind of started to uh fool around with the the modes and the rhetoric and the the tools that were Mm -hmm. involved in musicals and that was when the comedy was dropped and they were just called musicals because they were dramatic they were funny they were this they were that and uh melodramatic even you know Stephen Sondheim calls Sweeney Todd a melodrama. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely think that this falls into the realm of musical comedy. Most in, definitely. Oh, in almost its truest form, in that it is willful suspension of disbelief <laughs> to just, like, <laughs> believe that this world exists with its craziness. Yeah. Um, and that what you're looking at is absolutely real. Oh, yeah. And... To be fair, they do a great job of convincing you. They do an amazing job of convincing you in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this movie could be made as well here, you know, almost 40 years later. I don't think so either, just because I don't think that there's anybody anymore, or at least I don't think there is, are as many people who are trained to do what was required for this movie to happen. You mean in terms of like, like the puppeteers, and... the puppet makers? Like, I don't think that not that it's a completely dead art form, but it's it's not as widely used as it once was. It's not as celebrated because back in the 70s and 80s, you had the boom of Jim Henson Studios. You had uh, all kinds of of puppetry being used you know you had the dark crystal you had mm-hmm. the muppets you had uh you, obviously this movie and yeah puppetry was just more of an acceptable uh art form i think people were willing to suspend their disbelief to go on the journey with a puppet yeah um and these days you know it makes me sad to think that if they were making a little shop today i think audrey 2 would be 98 percent Oh, I would say 100%. You think? Yeah. They they might have one when it's very small and it's sitting in the, the Maxwell House pod. Yeah. Like, that would be a prop, but I doubt it would move. Yeah. You know? It would be almost entirely CGI. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, and not to be, you know, 
the cranky woman yelling at clouds. <laughs> but like, uh, it's disappointing because I think there's so much value in that. Like watching this movie, the puppetry is so fucking phenomenal that it it like it doesn't pull you out of the scene. No, but because it's a physical thing in the scene. It is interacting with the things around it. And so it looks very real. But there's also the part of your brain that's going, holy shit, look what this puppet is doing. Yeah, and wondering how many people it took to make it do that. 40, 50, 60,000 people? Who knows? We were talking about this when we were watching it. It's like the damn thing's lips track to the lyrics. Like you could could lip read Audrey too. It's articulating. it's, It's completely bonkers to me that there was somebody moving the mouth that's like okay this is what it looks like when you make a t sound yeah and it's like there was holy shit yeah (laughs) there was one point where audrey i forget audrey too says i I don't remember what the line is but she's like uh she i I think she calls seymour like a chump or something yeah and it's like what are you gonna do chump but like the ch yeah. Like looked like a like a chuh. Like I yeah. could read chuh from it. And I was like, how the fuck do you even figure out what that looks like? <laughs> how, like it was the level of puppeteering that I was like, you know what? Take all of my money. Like you <laughs> earned it. You earned every red. Well, that's penny. what Warner Brothers did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, take all of our money. <laughs> Literally all and of it. It did. It was like because we were reading about this and this was like at the time the highest uh, uh the, the most expensive, the most expensive movie, movie that Warner Brothers had ever made. Had ever made. And they were simultaneously filming Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> like, Which is crazy. I believe 100% that it was just 1,000% this puppet. Yeah. Is why this film was so expensive, but it was worth every goddamn dime. Audrey 2 <laughs> was like, it, the whole movie cost like $23 million, and Audrey 2 was like $22.9 million. Like, <laughs> that is... <laughs> That is essentially... Which is unfortunately why it would be CGI today, but fuck that. I don't care. In my opinion, and and again, like I said before, take all of my money. Like, this is the level of craftsmanship and creativity that is worth every fucking dime. And this was Jim Henson Studios. I don't think it was officially Jim Henson Studios. I think it was people who had worked for Jim Henson Studios. Uh, Yeah, but that's kind of what I meant. it's, yeah. It was definitely Henson veterans. It was Henson veterans uh, who had kind of um, who had definitely taken part in in fu- in f- the functionality of this of this puppet. I can't remember uh, the gentleman's name who um, designed the puppets. Oh God, uh, I'll I'll look it up. But um, you know th- this. This movie is just so fucking phenomenal. And the thing that I love about the puppeteering the most is, again, kind of what I was saying um, before. It it never pulls you out of the story because it is a physical object in the world. It's a character. It's a character. Yeah. Um, And that's... Again, something that I just don't think can be replicated using CGI. You know what I mean? At least not not in a way that I'm going to believe the same way. Like, yeah, 
Like, yeah, you can use CGI to make the lips track and you can use CGI to make it do all the things it did as a puppet easily. But it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't like at all. <laughs> it, it doesn't it doesn't feel the same um at all because and I know we've talked about this a million times and we're going to sound like those uh we're going to sound like those people but um I I just like you don't get the the same level of like shadow and lighting and realism it yeah. always looks like someone popped it in afterwards yeah to me at least having grown up uh i can always see the green tennis ball so to speak yeah <laughs> exactly exactly it always it always looks just like slightly not right yeah just a little uncanny yeah but it's not even like it's not even uncanny valley it's like it 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 just doesn't feel real. It looks like it's animated. And it is animated, but um uh I, I I don't know. I don't know. The whole thing is is just crazy to me. I I have so much uh I have so much admiration for puppeteers. There's a really great um puppeteer and puppet maker who is a friend of mine, his name is uh David Manley. <clears throat> And he is the one who actually made the pissy puppet mm -hmm. for me. And it is phenomenally made. Like you look at this thing and it is, it is just like pure artwork. Yeah. It is pure artwork. I don't have enough nice things to say about David Manley either because I, and I know I say that about a lot of people, but David, David, he owns um, a, a company called up in arms puppets and he does educational puppet theater. Uh, and he is just so skilled. It's like it's like watching someone do like woodworking or uh, you know mm -hmm. something that I don't want to say is outdated because it is certainly not, but it is kind of a a less popular art form that is just so phenomenal and I think does not get the recognition it deserves. No, I 100% agree. I think that I think that modern movies would be a lot better if we used a lot more puppets. I agree. Personally. <laughs> did you see the Happy Time Murders? I did not see the Happy Time Murders. I saw the trailer and I kind of wanted to see it, but it just never, mm -hmm. it never made its way into the queue. It's not perfect, but it is really good. Like, it's really enjoyable. I, I love the movie. And again, it's like, that's the kind of movie I want to see more of. I I want whimsy. I want camp. I want silliness. Uh, and it's it's hard to find people with that sensibility now. I think comedy has changed in so many ways to yeah. be less whimsical. It is. It's definitely more blunt and uh, kind of on the nose now. <laughs> Not to be too rude, but you know, I don't think. And this is a very sweeping generalization, so I apologize in advance because I know that obviously there are a lot of different styles of comedy out there. But I think in mainstream culture right now, the style of comedy, like I said, is very on the nose. It doesn't like there isn't a lot of space for wit. No, I th I think that there's probably a reason why I can't tell you the last time I 
watched a comedy that was something made after the year like 2004. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I do like comedies that have come since then. Like movies like Bridesmaids. Yeah, Bridesmaids was good. I'll, I'll give uh, that and really most of Melissa McCarthy's movies. I loved Identity Thief. I love um, The Boss is a really great movie. But again, lacks kind of the sophistication of a movie like, say, Clue. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, and Clue is not... <laughs> it's not... Uh, what a, I don't I just called it sophisticated but uh it's not that sophisticated no it's not it's, but it's it's putting on all the trappings of being sophisticated and then reducing itself down. to farce exactly yeah. yeah exactly um and that kind of is is one of the things I love so much about this movie about Little Shop of Horrors is that it kind of has that same sensibility where it's like it's very sophisticated in its storytelling devices mm-hmm. but it has a Greek chorus for fuck's sake. Yeah, for real. You have uh, Crystal Ronette and uh, Chiffon, who, and again, another nod to it's like this story is just peppered with all of these like fun little things. Like the Chiffons, the Ronettes, and the Crystals were '60s girl groups, mm-hmm. and so you have the this Greek chorus of Chiffon, Crystal, and Ronette who are basically propelling the story along and in the stage play actually are even more involved in in uh moving the story along this movie is just so good at uh being entertaining and really sophisticated in its method yeah you know what i mean no i do have you ever seen the stage show i have never seen the stage show i was actually I was really disappointed. I wanted to see it when it was on Broadway Mm. and I just never got tickets. I just was never able to get a pair of tickets to go see it. I was really lucky. A friend of mine in high school uh, invited me to see it with her mom. Her mom loved the theater, loved, loved, loved the theater. And so she took me to see like Man of La Mancha with Brian Stokes Mitchell. And she took me to see Little Shop of Horrors, the Broadway production in the early 2000s. And this show was phenomenal. I mean, the puppeteering, again, very sophisticated. Not obviously the level of puppeteering that you could achieve on film. Yeah. Uh, because it's just not feasible. But um, a, a really, really great production. I will say... Um, Audrey was played by Carrie Butler, who is an amazing actress with a, a really huge body of work. At the risk of of being too comparative, uh, it was hard to enjoy the performance without comparing her to Ellen Green. Yeah. And everyone who is compared to Ellen Green in this part is going to come up wanting. Carrie Butler was phenomenal, and I... I I think she's great, but it's just impossible to but watch. But Ellen Green owns this role, and that's yeah. just it. It's like it's like uh, Cheetah Rivera in Chicago. Like mm-hmm. every Velma, yeah. After Cheetah Rivera is going to be compared to Cheetah Rivera. Every person who plays um, the Spider Woman in Kiss of the Spider Woman mm-hmm. is going to be compared to Cheetah Rivera. Basically, what I'm trying to say is I love Cheetah Rivera. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
for some reason, I did find it easier to um, see someone else playing Seymour than I did okay. to see someone else playing Audrey. I don't really know why. Uh, and I actually will say the actor who played Audrey 2 in the Broadway production, his name was Michael C. Worley. Um, you guys probably know him if you watched AJ and the Queen. He was the blind um the blind friend whose name I can't remember at the moment. I didn't watch it. Oh, you didn't watch it? No, I didn't watch if it. If you watch it for no other reason, watch it for Michael C. Worley because he's fucking hysterical. Um, it, it, it He played Audrey II, the, the plant, on Broadway. And I actually kind of found him to be even a little favorable to Levi Stubbs. Really? Yeah. Levi Stubbs has more of like a little Richard feel where Michael C. Worley was just kind of towing the line between the Motown origins of the Mm -hmm. music and also just kind of playing this evil plant. (laughs) Um, I, I just, I loved what he did vocally with the role. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I just really loved him in the part and I don't I don't know. That's all that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> I feel like Forrest Gump. <laughs> I I don't have enough uh nice things to say about uh Michael Worley. Um No, I really wish I had gotten to see the stage show. I think um if nothing else I love the movie so much that I think I really would have enjoyed it. Of course there are some key differences between the stage show and the movie. Mostly having to do with the ending. Yeah, things got uh, changed around for the for the movie because, again, e- even though I think this movie stays very close to its roots in the stage production, um, anytime you kind of take things to Hollywood, people tend to fuck around with things, and it's like at the risk of of getting myself blacklisted from an industry I don't even take part in I am going to say like every like every person who is not creative gets involved in film <laughs> and they all want some kind of a say in the way things work <laughs> uh and so they shot this movie with the with the original um uh, with the original ending, and the original ending is much darker. You know, it ends with Mushnik, and who is the florist uh, who owns the flower shop, and Audrey being eaten by Audrey too, and then the plant ends up eating Seymour, and the whole show ends with a song called "Don't Feed the Plants," where Audrey too basically takes over the world. Yes, and um, that <laughs> that. Uh, ending did not test well with the, I guess the the film audiences and yeah. so they changed it to the ending it is now where Seymour kind of comes and rescues uh Audrey 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 2 or Audrey, uh, Audrey from Audrey 2 yeah. and kills the plant so yeah. uh it in my opinion does not um it does not have the same Oomph. Oomph. Yeah, it doesn't... <laughs> because the whole point of the show is that you should be careful who you sell your soul to. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's basically... This is kind of the 
the the devil went down to Georgia. You know what I mean? Yeah. Seymour sells himself to this plant to get the thing he wants, which is uh, a relationship with Audrey and kind of a life outside of Skid Row and, and all of this stuff. And he ends up making the completely wrong decision because the plant ends up forcing him to kill people. Um, by the way, I want to correct myself. His name is Michael Leon Worley. Uh, Wool- Leon Woolley. Uh, uh, Michael Leon Woolley. I had his name totally wrong and I apologize. <laughs> he was he played the plant on Broadway. Um, but all of this is is to say that I, I do love this movie, especially for the music. Yes, the music is amazing. I love, love, love the music in this movie. I mean, it's Alan Menken. So. It's Alan Menken. And for those of you who uh, are unfortunate enough not to know Alan Menken, he is... Every 90s Disney movie that you liked, it was Alan Menken. Yeah, Alan Menken is like the Lion King, the Little Mermaid, uh, Hercules. Hercules, by the yes. way, let's talk underrated movie musicals. Um <laughs> I'm I and has done so much work in musical theater obviously having written this show and he he wrote um Sister Act the musical he did all the music for that uh he is just so prolific he wrote Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Pocahontas um he did all the music for Enchanted it's like this is a man who, and, and uh, let me just tell you what it says on his uh, on his Wikipedia. He has eight, eight Academy Awards, a Tony Award, eleven Grammy Awards, seven Golden Globe Awards, and a Daytime Emmy. <laughs> and what the fuck did he get a Daytime <laughs> Emmy for? Nobody knows. But he he's got it, and it's like he is honestly just like one of the most talented uh composers i've ever in, uh, encountered and howard ashman who wrote the the book and the lyrics um also fucking phenomenal these two men were um famous like famous a famous duo kind of like candor and ebb like mm-hmm. Anytime you see Alan Menken, you're almost guaranteed to see Howard Ashman. And uh, Howard Ashman sadly died in the 90s. He passed away uh, from complications of AIDS, um, which is a a truly, truly sad thing that, again, you know, queer history. It's important to know how many people were actually affected by that terrible virus. But... um, the music in this movie is phenomenal. Do you have a favorite song? It's always a toss up for me because every time I watch it, it's a different one. I know. Like, <laughs> and the, and the music is so good. It's like, you almost can't pick a favorite. No, it's, it's hard to like, I, I think it usually comes down to suddenly Seymour mm-hmm. because Ellen Green is just fucking selling it in that oh, yeah. song. <laughs> <laughs> Like she is going all the fuck out and suddenly see more and it's just, it's amazing to watch. Yeah. 
And she has a phenomenal yes, voice. Yes, she does. Like, but for some reason, it's hilarious because she's got the lisp going. And <laughs> she's got like... the lisp going. She has boobs up to her chin, <laughs> which is hard because her neck is so long. Uh, she, it is just phenomenal to watch her sing this song. It's also got one of my favorite lines that comes right before it. It's it's just like, she's like, and I was wearing tacky clothes, not nice things like these. And she's sitting there in the <laughs> It's literally like a G-string for her yeah, nipples. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. Uh, it's she is uh, she is phenomenal. The, some of the best lines in the whole show are with regard to Audrey. Yes. What's the, what was the line that I asked you about when we were watching it? Oh, um, <laughs> Rick Moranis says the Audrey two is not a healthy girl, and um, Vincent Gardenia says between you and I, neither is the Audrey one. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the best line in the whole movie. It is so fucking funny. Um, yeah, Vincent Gardinia is, uh, is Mr. Um, Mushnick. Mr. Mushnick. Mr. Yes. Mushnick. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could pick a favorite song. One of my favorites from this show has always been uh, The Meek Shall Inherit. Mm-hmm. Do you know that song? I've I've heard it on the soundtrack, but yeah. I've never seen it clearly since I didn't see the show. Yeah, it's even better in the musical because it's kind of an extended song and it's mm-hmm. kind of about how Seymour kind of sells himself to this this awful thing. Yeah. And it, it it's just this great kind of a bop of a song. It's like, you know the meek shall inherit. You know the book doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. It's not a question of merit. It's not demand and supply. It's like just this like again Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, just this like every song in this is an earworm. Every yes. single one. You have Dentist, which is fucking hysterical. <laughs> and uh, Steve Martin did such a good job with it. It's, it's like- so good. The number of times he hits that poor nurse. I know. <laughs> Even just the singing, like, like, which again, not a thing I knew Steve Martin could do until yeah. this film. But like, he also plays the banjo. I did not know that. He does. Good for Steve Martin. He's a regular <laughs> Kermit the Frog. He can sing and play the banjo. But um, <laughs> he's he Rainbow, Rainbow Connection. Connection. I fucking uh, hate that song. Oh, I like that song. <laughs> it's sweet. I know you don't like. It's, sweet it's songs. a little saccharine for me. I like saccharine songs. That's fine. You're I allowed. love them. That's why, like. Even though it is like a campy, nonsensical song, the end of Somewhere That's Green always makes me cry. Because it's like, it's when you think about like what the character is actually asking for, it's like just some kind of normalcy. And, you know, the idea that this is a daydream is is funny in the way it is portrayed in the movie. But the fact that the only relief she has from this like awful relationship and this awful life is this kind of daydream fantasy. It's just like, it's a little bleak. It's bleak. And it just like tugged because she's such a lovable character that it's like, you just want her to be happy. You just want the best for Audrey. And it's like, God, dear God, like give this woman a break. Dear God. (laughs) Which also in the original ending makes her death even more tragic. Exactly. Exactly. And more meaningful. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I love again another great song, "Somewhere That's Green." It's one of those things that I have a hard time watching "Somewhere That's Green" because I've seen it parodied so many other places, like yeah. particularly "Family Guy." <laughs> oh um, yeah, because it's Herbert. <laughs> Herbert. <laughs> and it's like it's it's a awful that that's like. <laughs> I can't I like, can't do the little it's, whistle. <laughs> it's awful that that's the first thing I think of, but like. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I, I don't like Family Guy anymore, but that is like the one thing out of that entire show that has just like stuck with me. I can see it <laughs> in my head whenever I hear the song. Like it's just it's just stuck there. It's living there rent free and I can't get rid of it. Yeah, it is definitely a, a it is it is a memory that sticks and will not let go. Yeah. It's, it is like gorilla glued to your brain. Um, yeah, I have even done yes, a, a version of Somewhere That's Green. You can find it on YouTube if you search Pissy Miles Somewhere That's Green. I won't. Well, I guess it would be a spoiler. I did it with the Pissy Puppet. Yes. And it's it was part of the Pissy Miles Variety Hour. And it is still to this day, I think, people's favorite part of the variety hour so feel free to go look it up it is one of the things i am like most proud of it was amazing david and i it it was like it's a two and a half minute song i think if Mm -hmm. that and it took like hours and hours and hours to make because first of all let's go back to those puppeteers those people deserve all the credit in the world because Puppeteering for more than like three and a half seconds is painful. Yeah. It is just like those puppets are not light and kind of making them like come to life takes so many muscles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it, it is to this day one of my favorite music videos I've ever made. So feel free to go check it out on YouTube. Um, Even the title song in this movie I love it and it gets stuck in my head all the time. Like even when I haven't watched this movie in a long time, that yeah. little shop, little shop of horrors, like, like, little shop of terror. Like I'll be standing in the shower and that'll, <laughs> <laughs> and that'll just like pop into my brain. And I'm just like, why? And why all is this Sarah's, here now? Sarah's in bed and all she hears is. <laughs> all of a sudden you're doing a tap dance in the shower. Uh, Yes, and again, I I do love the movie musical version, but I like the orchestrations from the Broadway production better. Okay. And I actually I really like the actresses who play the the uh, who play Chiffon Ronette mm-hmm. and Crystal in the movie, but the actresses in the Broadway production had such phenomenal voices. It's like, you need to ju- just listen to it. Listen to Little Shop of Horrors, the, the song Little Shop of Horrors from the 2003 Broadway production. It is like thrilling to listen to these women sing. Wow. It is just phenomenal. I, I, it's phenomenal. <laughs> if you, is it phenomenal? It's phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> they just have such thrilling voices. I think if you, not that you have to be a trained vocalist to be thrilled by these voices, but like, as someone who has studied voice for a long time, I find myself listening to them sing and I'm like, my God, you are a machine. Like <laughs> you, what you are doing is is just unfathomable to me. And I, I have nothing. It's like, oh, it just like, it, it like sets my heart afire <laughs> to, to, to watch them sing it. Um, uh, this movie kind of the reason we chose this movie is because obviously it, it is a movie musical and it's funny and it's campy and it, it has so many great elements. But it is also kind of a horror movie. You know, there's a lot yeah. of death and uh sadism. Sadism. <laughs> sadomasochism. 
um, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in this movie. Uh, do you have a favorite death? It's a hard call mm-hmm. because obviously, like, there's there's really there's really only two. Yeah, and like they're both really good. I know. <laughs> and it's like as much as I want to say Steve Martin, I think Vincent Gardinius is really funny. <laughs> Mushnick's death is very funny. <laughs> like, because he just turns around, he's like, "What the?" F-? <laughs> and then this giant plant just, just <laughs> like the T Rex on fucking I know fucking Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I do think Mushnick's death is is probably the more entertaining one. Although I think Steve Martin's death is funny. It's a shame though because in the musical, while he is dying, he has a song. uh and it it sounds like it sounds like a carnival song it's very bizarre it's like dark and kind of uncomfortable in the in the play he doesn't have a mask he has Mm -hmm. like a helmet it's like a fish tank that he wears (laughs) over his head and he can't get it off and he sings this song and he's like don't be fooled if I should chuckle like hyenas in a zoo. It's just the gas. And it has all these like tinkering bells. Yeah. Like uh, It's got me high. But don't let that fact deceive you. Any moment I could die. And it's like, <laughs> and then uh, I forget what the line is. It's something like, um, uh, bear in mind I'm not immortal why this whole thing strikes me funny I don't know cause it really is a rotten way to go <laughs> and then uh, he sings this whole thing and he goes Wah. and he like lays down <laughs> on the stage and Seymour is just sitting in the chair with the gun and they're sitting there for like a solid like 10 seconds mm-hmm. and Seymour clearly doesn't know what to do and then right as he starts to get up from the chair Orin is like don't be and he like pops up and he's he starts singing again it's like this real again the musical is so campy and funny and has such a great sensibility um it's this really great song and i'm kind of sad that they didn't let steve martin have it because it was so good um there are also uh some cameos yes there are in this movie there are some really good ones too some really good ones do you have a favorite? I know who mine is. <laughs> I know who yours is too, so I'm gonna go with the other one. I always forget that John Candy is in this movie. I know because it's such a like, it's such a moment. Yeah. But John Candy is so like uh, such a fucking legend. I love John Candy, and uh, it's such a shame we don't still have him around. Yeah, no, he was an incredibly funny man, and even for the t- like ten seconds he's in this movie, it's like, hey, that's John Candy, and yeah. you're laughing, and it's like, like <laughs> just seeing him makes you laugh because it really does. It, he's just one of those people. <laughs> John Candy, for those of you who uh, don't know, he is famous for movies like Uncle Buck. He was in Home Alone. He plays the guy that gives um, Catherine O'Hara the ride back. He's, yeah, he. Uh, I forget what his band is called. The like, oh, I don't remember the the um, polka. They do like polka. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Um, and I can't remember his name, but uh, just a, an iconic, iconic uh, 90, 80s and 90s comedian. Uh, and he was he was in a really uh, well, well I'll, we'll get into that another day. Um, my favorite 
cameo in this movie, and I think probably yours too, yeah. is Bill Murray. Yeah, it's really hard to top Bill Murray. In the yeah, in this movie, he is just <laughs> fucking hysterical. Uh and And the knowledge that he didn't have like any lines to go off of, that's all just <laughs> Bill Murray. He's just like impre- <laughs> and that's the beauty of two actors like uh Steve Martin and Bill Murray, is they can just like put a scene together. Yeah. And it's like, okay, go. And they just do it. And it's so fucking funny. He plays this like, and this is not a character who is in the stage musical. Um, he plays this character who is just a sadomasochist. And he <laughs> uh, he goes to the dentist just to be tortured and kind of drives Orin crazy because he wants to torture this guy. And this guy is just loving every second yeah. of it. Um, But it is, it's so funny because he's like, it's like, Almost like a love scene. A little bit. (laughs) In a strange, strange way. And considering that Orin doesn't consent, I guess a bit rapey. A bit rapey. (laughs) Just to be fair, that cannot be the title of this episode. I forbid it. But yeah, no, just watching Bill Murray, especially when he's got his hand on Steve Martin's shoulder yeah, and he's just yeah. like, like... And it's uh, like the shot over the shoulder, so all you see is the back of his head and the sho- the hand like grabbing his shoulder. And it's like, oh, this is kind this of is, dirty. Yeah. Like, Frank Oz really shows his true colors in this movie. <laughs> no, I just love that, like, everything from, like, when he's sitting out in the waiting room, he's, like, up on the seat, like, on his toe, like, on his tiptoes. Yeah. Like, like, it's just... Everything about it is so completely perfect that yeah. it's just, you can't look away. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a tiny part of the movie. Like <laughs> I know, and kind of insignificant. Like, it really does not further the plot in any way, other than the fact that it kind of infuriates Oren to the point where he needs the laughing gas when he gets to see more. Yeah. That's really the only, <clears throat> the only uh, catalyst for having him in the movie. And... That said, in the musical, Oren is just kind of famous for having nitrous oxide with every patient. So yeah. it it was kind of, I don't want to say unnecessary. I guess unnecessary is a good way of, of describing it, even though it's, it, it is enjoyable, but not pivotal. You know, and I think it was just so smart to kind of let the audience see Oren get fucked with a little bit just before he died. Just because you, you really hate this guy. And mm-hmm. the way he goes isn't 100% satisfying. Like, if it's just that he uses gas all the time and just this time he didn't... <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't he didn't account for certain things. This was the one time. Like, it, was, it was one of those things where it made it, I feel like, more satisfying to know that he was pissed off right before he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> Like, seriously. Um, Him shoving Bill Murray out the fucking door. And and finding one of his instruments instruments in his coat. Uh, Yeah. Bill Murray's role in this movie, it it definitely... uh, I don't want to say it steals the show, but it it comes damn close. Yeah, for, for about three minutes... Like, you forget that the rest of the story is going on because yeah. Bill Murray is just so fucking funny. Do you have a favorite character? I've never really thought about it, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that, like, I have a sincere affection for Mr. Mushnick. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me, actually. <laughs> like- <laughs> 
he seems like he is exactly who you would be in this movie. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. No, but it's just like, particularly when he's yelling at Audrey about like who she's dating, like like it's just it just makes me so happy when he's like, he doesn't seem like a good, clean kind of boy. Like, it's just like, <laughs> he's everyone's dad. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I think I, it's hard to say because I think my favorite characters are Audrey and the other Audrey. <laughs> it's like Audrey or Audrey too. Because Audrey 2 is such Audrey 2 is such a character in this in this movie and it is insane the way this plant is personified. Yeah, it's completely nuts. Like it's 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 full-blown it's a full-blown thing in and of itself. Like, yeah. You never doubt it for a second the entire time that it's talking and moving and <laughs> you're like, yes, this is, is alive. It's like, yes, this is this is a live murderous giant venus flytrap although you don't know it's murderous to begin with it True. takes it takes some time to it's actually kind of cute in the beginning that's what i was gonna say i was like <laughs> you know if it if it really stopped at that initial phase at like phase one yeah audrey too would have been very cute uh, and it really leads me to my my biggest deduction about audrey too which is that i think had the spirit of audrey too been born into anything other than a plant it would have been a cat like Audrey too would have been a cat. It was like the the way it like pines for the blood, and then when he offers it the other finger, it's like no. And then when it's like when it wants to be fed, it's like for me, please. And then like being cute and 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 affectionate, but also wanting to kill you. Yes, like in the same moment. Yes, that is a cat. Audrey Two is essentially a cat. Uh, it is a, Audrey Two is a short-haired cat, a black tabby, <laughs> probably Wally. I knew you were gonna fucking say that. I, but prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. He knocks shit over. But Wally's never asked me to kill anyone yet. And it's all the only reason Wally has never asked you to kill anyone is because he wants to do it himself. <laughs> probably true uh yeah i do and obviously i love audrey i really do just have so much affection for the character of audrey i think she's such a she's such a lovable character it's hard to have anything but affection for audrey yeah i mean there's always that like especially in the beginning there's that little bit of like girl like what are you doing you know better (laughs) you know and look who's in front of you like for real yeah rick moranis rick moranis one of like the sweetest people in the whole fucking world yes rick moranis is just like an angel he is (laughs) he is a puppy angel um yeah i don't know and you know what's funny back before i was doing drag and i was still auditioning for the legitimate theater um i auditioned for the role of seymour a number of times and was never cast which is why I became a drag queen. Um, but I I do think I definitely have like a Seymour energy in me. Okay. I'm like that weird underdog. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're Mushnik and I'm I'm definitely Seymour. I make you live under my shop and call you a slob all the time. I guess so. <laughs> but then when I put drag on, I think I'm like a hundred percent Audrey too. <laughs> not even Audrey. Audrey not even too. Audrey. I, I am Audrey too. I am like 
a murderous, devilish, kind of funny singing plant. <laughs> uh, is there anything about this movie that you don't like? I think, like, the only thing mm. is it's such a weird moment, but it's when... Uh, crap. It's at the very end. I don't like the way they kill the plant. Like is the, is the only really way to say it. Like it's yeah. <clears throat> it seems kind of like a cop out. It's fine. Yeah. Like, it feels like it needs a more dramatic ending. Yeah, like a an axe or something. <laughs> yeah, or like a chainsaw. Or just or, a really sharp pair of pruning shears. Yeah, he should get pruned to death. Yeah. Uh yeah. I think that's a fair criticism. I will agree. I I wish that they had stuck to the original ending. But I guess hindsight is 2020. It's also like who are these people that get to be test audiences? Yeah, I want to be a test audience. Like I think I would give much better feedback than most of these people. You know what I mean? Right. And I mean, I'm assuming they get paid or something. So it's it's like I want to know how you get that gig. I would love to know because if you're listening and you know how to make me uh, a test audience on films, <laughs> my spooky gay family or spooky gay fam at gmail.com. <laughs> Send it in. <laughs> I would also love to be a, a, a ratings member of the MPAA. Mm. That is the thing I would love to do. I would just rate because, everything. X. Because apparently you need absolutely no credentials to be one i'm not surprised because the mpaa is a bunch of censoring bullshit artists they're yeah. just uh, the mpaa for those of you who don't know is just a bunch of assholes like that is literally all they are yes a bunch of festering putrid assholes yes <laughs> glenn is like stop it stop <laughs> <laughs> he's hurling himself off the entertainment unit glenn is like we don't need big ratings after us just <laughs> big ratings <laughs> Oh, goodness. Have you ever seen the original Little Shop? Because this movie and the musical is based on a 1960s horror film uh, that was a black and white horror film. Um, I have actually seen it. I actually watched it at David's birthday that that time. That, yes. Yes. That Dave, you got a projector and everything. We did. We got a projector and we had like a movie screening for David's birthday. This was back when, again, we still lived with our parents at the time. And uh, we had one birthday where... We um, we set up the projector outside by his parents' pool, and we got, like, floaties, mm -hmm. and everyone sat in the pool and, like, had drinks and watched Scream. Nice. And then there was this one where it was raining, unfortunately, so we had to screen inside, uh, and we watched, like, vintage horror movies. David mm -hmm. got all of these, like, old 50s and 60s horror movies, and one of them was... Uh, Little Shop of Horrors and we watched it and it was great. It really was. It was it was a pretty great movie. Like I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, it's certainly not camp. No. It was it was definitely intended to be more of a sci-fi horror movie. Yes. Uh which Jack Nicholson is in it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally bizarre. Um do you think that this this music this movie musical does justice to the original story? I think it's superior. I kind of do too. <laughs> like at the, <laughs> at the risk of being that person who's who's actually saying that a remake is better than, but I don't really consider it a remake. I consider them two completely different things. Yeah, they're they're almost unrelated. 
Yeah, because once you add music to something, like you, you've completely taken it out of whatever form it was in before. Like, like I don't consider Gaston LaRue's Phantom of the Opera to be the same as Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom no, of the Opera. No, they're two completely different They're two things. completely different things. Yeah. Uh, I, I will 100% agree with that. And I actually think that the music improved the story. I think it did too. I, Because a lot of the trouble I have with 50s and 60s B-movies is it's very hard sometimes the dialogue is really fast and clipped they don't spend a lot of time on any scenes so it's very hard to gauge where a character is emotionally mm-hmm. and then you have him sing it and it, <laughs> all of a sudden it works great it's perfect yes nailed it nailed it done <laughs> that's a wrap <laughs> yeah i will say that and i don't think this all the time certainly especially with like the new um blockbuster musicals like Beetlejuice and Mrs. Doubtfire and all of those things. I didn't know they'd made a Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, they did. They did. (laughs) (laughs) Are they just taking the entire 90s catalog and going like, okay, let's slap some let's slap some music in here? (laughs) You know, I know that I am a bit of a cynic and I fully I've I I fully admit that I am kind of a cranky old woman but i just like i don't like what broadway i don't want to say i don't like what broadway is right now i don't like the trend that is happening on broadway right now which is just taking movies and And turning them into musicals it's like in one season we had like beetlejuice mrs doubtfire tootsie and it's like they're changing the stories yeah so it's like who who gives a shit it's like there's a part of me that sits there and goes like every so often it happens and you're like, okay, I can kind of enjoy this. But like when every musical on Broadway is a movie that has been turned into a musical, yeah. it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, are are we running out of ideas? Like, did no one go to school for, for writing? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think it's the same thing we're seeing in, movies though too is doing remakes and reboots and we're just rehashing the same ground over and over again because we know it sells yeah and it's that no one's willing to take a risk anymore <laughs> yeah and that's exactly what it is i think you're 100 percent right and I've, I've said that before too it's like nobody is willing to try something new to see if it works no. because everything has to be a 20 million dollar show yeah so it's like of course no one's gonna throw away 20 million dollars to see if it works but that's why musicals like, uh, and these are terrible examples because they're both musicals that are based on movies, but like movies like Hairspray and the Producers, which I almost don't associate with the, the root material. Yeah. Um, or even something like Hamilton. It's like these shows go through years and years and years of workshopping and and like working them out or... Adam Bashian, mm-hmm. who, you know, has been on the podcast before and we've discussed him many times, Dark Interiors. Adam is an actor. <laughs> ding. <laughs> ding. <laughs> uh, Adam is an actor. He has been in so many shows. He was on Broadway and in transit. He was in uh, uh, the tour of Phantom of the Opera for years. And he was in a musical called Octet. Mm-hmm. That was that played at the the signature theater in New York. It was like the smash hit 
of the season. It was an amazing, amazing musical, totally brand new, written uh, and workshopped over years and years and years. And that's the thing. It's like nobody wants to invest the time and money in really creating something anymore. How many things can we can we Be complain about, about <laughs> in one episode? Yeah. <laughs> but that's something you know what I'm going to turn it from a complaint into a hope. I'm going to say my hope is that when everything comes back and uh you know we can finally get the ball rolling again on these creative projects. My hope is that everyone will come back wanting to just dive in head first and and just throw themselves into massively creative projects. My hope is that everyone will just come back and want so desperately to be creative that it's like who we have no time for 90s movies. <laughs> we can't revisit a single one. We're just going to start with totally new projects. You I know what so. I mean? Yes, I do. Uh, I don't know. All of that uh all of that said I I think we've covered everything I wanted to cover. Yeah. Did, did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, yeah. If I missed anything, and there, believe me, there's a lot we could have missed. So yeah. There's so, 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 so much involved in, in this movie. Everything from Frank Oz to the puppetry to the amazing stars in this movie uh we'd love to hear your thoughts on little shop of horrors so type away in the comments we'd love to hear your thoughts send us some messages on social media or at spookygayfam at gmail.com we love 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 to hear from you and don't forget to send in uh if you are a patreon member send in your questions we'd love to answer your questions on our mini-sode next week so until next week stay spoopy and remember should giggle like a sappy happy dope it's just the gas <laughs> it's got me high but don't let that fact deceive you any moment i could die <laughs> though i giggle and i chortle bear in mind i'm not immortal why this whole thing strikes me funny i don't My Spooky Gay Family features music by Nate Walker, artwork by David Elon, and this episode contains clips from the original Broadway cast recording of Little Shop of Horrors, copyright 2003, DRG Records. Please subscribe on iTunes, leave us a nice message, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. My Spooky Gay Family is a product of Barbara Duel Productions. Barbara.